0: Psalm 106:19 19-23 They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we at this moment now want to align our hearts with Your heart. And we do that by aligning our hearts with Your Word. Lord, we're so thankful that You have given to us Your holy Scriptures that are able to teach us and actually uh, guide us and direct us into a life that can glorify you Lord that's what we want we want our lives to glorify you because we all know that as we live our lives the way you've called us to live them as we live our lives for your glory that's what it actually means to flourish as people so Lord as we consider this great story of which we just read a summary in Psalm 106 Lord we pray that you would align our hearts once again with you That Lord, this morning, you would cause each of us from our hearts to trust you, to love you, and to obey you for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So in Psalm 106, we just read that little blurb, it's a little summary of the famous story about idolatry that we find in Exodus chapter 32. As most of you know, we've been studying through the book of Exodus together. We've titled this sermon series, The Gospel According to Moses. And we're looking at how the storyline of Exodus is actually just a snapshot of the storyline of the Bible, which is a story of a great and mighty Creator God who loves His people, who delivers His people from their enemies, and who ultimately dwells with His people. This week, we are looking at the story of Exodus chapter 32. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. Again, Psalm 106 is just a brief summary of this story. Now, Exodus 32, you need to understand, is the defining example of idolatry for the Hebrew people. Like when they think about commandment number 2, You shall have no other idols. The Hebrew people always go back to Exodus 32 and this massive, colossal moment of failure as God's people. I want to read for us verses 1 through 6. And today, our subject from this text is idolatry. Here's verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We'll stop there. What a crazy story. The story of Israel's idolatry. Now we need to understand this morning that when we talk about idolatry, what we're really talking about is worship. Worship Gone wrong. See, human beings are hardwired for worship. It is innate within us as humans created in the image of God. We notice from the story here that God's people, the Israelites, were not content with nothing to worship. Moses and Joshua had gone up on the mountain to meet with God to receive the Ten Commandments. And they had been gone for some time and the people get antsy in their spirit and it's like we've got to have something to worship. Okay, enough is enough. Aaron, make us a God. We need a God we can see. We don't know about that God that Moses was telling us about and that he represents. We want a God we can see, that we can handle, perhaps that we can control. Make us a God now. When the Israelites lost sight of God, their hearts drifted towards something else to worship. In this case, a golden calf. And this drift wasn't over a long period of time. It happened really quickly. Here's what verse 8 tells us in Exodus 32. God's talking to Moses now. And he says, they have turned aside, you can underline it, quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. So very quickly they lose sight of God and they need to prop up something else to worship. Worship is hardwired into us as humans. Romans chapter 1 teaches us this so clearly. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul is going to make this sweeping assessment of human nature. Here's what he writes in Romans 1:18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, here's what they do, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the key. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what Paul's saying. All people, doesn't matter where you were raised, where you were born, doesn't matter if you're alive in the 21st century or the first century, all people have a basic knowledge of God as creator, and it comes to us through what theologians call natural revelation. The psalmist said that he could look at the stars in the sky and it declared the glory of the Lord. When you look around the world, when you see a brand new baby, when you stand at the top of Half Dome in Yosemite, and you just look. Intuitively, people go, somebody did that. There's something behind that. That's why people all throughout history have been worshipers. People have always been religious because we are hardwired for worship. Everyone has a basic knowledge of God as creator. But Paul says, here's the fundamental problem in the world. Many people suppress that knowledge And they start looking away from the Creator as God to things within the creation, to idols. So church, we have to understand this morning, we are all worshipers. All of us put our hope in something. Every single one of us is finding significance and meaning and purpose from something. Every single one of us fear losing something in your life above everything else that you have. And that thing is the thing that we worship. And listen to me this morning. If that thing that I'm kind of prodding at right now is anything other than God, that thing's an idol. That thing is a counterfeit God. So the question this morning for all of us is not do you worship? No, the question is, who or what do you worship? The human heart in this way is like a river. Think about a river. A river is always flowing. You can't stop a river from flowing. All you can do is direct the flow of the river. And it's going to keep on gushing, keep on going. Now, some of you are going, wait, what about when we build dams? Don't we stop rivers? I already thought of that. No, dams do not stop rivers. What do dams do? They cause the water to actually start flowing upward and outward. And dams actually have to release a little bit of water so they don't get overrun. The point is with a river, that thing is always flowing. Our only option is to direct the flow of the river. In church, listen this morning. Your heart as it relates to worship is always going to worship the only choice you get is directing where that worship will go. Either you worship the living God or you worship something less than God, an idol, a counterfeit, false God. Well, let's define our terms. What is idolatry? If you're a note taker, you could write this down. If you're not, that's okay. I think I read on Instagram like 90, 5% or 99% of CEOs don't take notes. So I'm not going to judge you if you don't. You're just a boss. But if you take notes, you can write this down. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the perversion of worship, it's worship gone wrong. Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God and looking to it or them to provide what only He can provide. We'll leave that up there for a moment. Idolatry is the perversion of worship. It's worship gone wrong. Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God and then looking to them or it to provide you with what only God can provide. For the Israelites, 3,500 years ago, in the wilderness of Sinai, they put a golden calf in the place of God. And notice, this is so significant. Aaron and the others attribute the work of the true God, the work of Yahweh who had destroyed Pharaoh and destroyed Egypt and brought them out of slavery and parted a Red Sea, they attributed that work, the thing that only God could do for them, to this golden calf. Look at verse 4 again. Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving toll and he made a golden calf. And they said, check this out, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This golden calf, that's your God that did this amazing work of deliverance. So they committed idolatry. They put a golden calf, they learned this one from the Egyptians, in the place of God. And when people put anything in the place of God, it's a big deal. How do we know that, Pastor Daniel? I mean, it's not like God gave us a list of like, I don't know, the top 10 things that we shouldn't do that we could fact check this against. Or wait, he did. Of course, the 10 commandments. What tops the 10 commandments? Commandments number one and two are directly related to who we worship. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Let me make myself more clear. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. No wonder when Moses comes down the mountain with these 10 commandments, and one and two are on tablet number one, and he sees those being violated. He's just like, okay, I got to just drop these. let them shatter on the ground. It's like we are utterly failing at this new covenant relationship with Yahweh. I know some of us this morning up to this point are like, hmm, this has been a very interesting introduction, Pastor Daniel, but can we have a sermon on something relevant? I mean, I got 99 problems, but idolatry isn't one of them. Don't be so fast. Idolatry is not an Old Testament issue only. 1 John 5.21, we read this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How about 1 Corinthians 10.14? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, idolatry was rampant in the Mediterranean world at the time of the New Testament. That's why the apostles are writing against this in the New Testament. But idolatry is still rampant today. It's just not quite as obvious. Pastor Tim Keller in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, writes this, and I quote, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige." End quote, So helpful. Because too often when we think about idolatry, we think of what we're reading in Exodus 32, we think about golden calves or we think about statues maybe in a particular ethnic restaurant or statues in some temple in another culture way out there in another place in the world. But guess what? Idols exist everywhere. And here's why. Because according to the Bible, idolatry takes place, listen, in your heart. Idolatry takes place in your heart. Listen to Ezekiel 14.3. Son of man, these men have taken idols. Notice he doesn't say into the temple. They've taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. The Bible teaches that human beings have three general responses to idols. Human beings trust in idols. Human beings love idols. And human beings obey idols. Doesn't that sound like the textbook definition of worship? To trust in, to love, to obey something. The Bible says that's how humans respond to idols. Notice those are all heart responses. Idolatry is taking place right here inside of the heart. This is why the great reformer John Calvin referred to the heart as an idol factory. His point was, your your heart is, is just constantly tempted to manufacture idols and just pump them out like a factory would do. Take any and everything and turn it into idols. Our hearts can make almost anything into a listen, ultimate thing. We can trust, love, and obey all sorts of lesser gods. Okay, pastor, give me some examples. Help me get my heart around this. Thank you for asking. Here you go. What kinds of things can we turn into idols? Here's a huge one. Successful career. Jimmy Fallon was interviewed by Rolling Stone a number of years ago. Listen to what he says. I remember, he says, saying to myself, if I don't make it on Saturday Night Live before I'm 25, I'm going to kill myself. It's crazy, he said. I had no other plan. I had no friends. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything else going on. I had my career. That was it. Do you hear the idolatry there? There is somebody who has taken success and career and elevated it to cosmic proportions. Jimmy Fallon, as a young man, was able to say, look, if I don't achieve the success that I want, my life is not worth living. That was where he was deriving his sense of meaning. What about money and possessions? Martin Luther wrote, money is the world's favorite idol because one who has money and property has a sense of security and feels, well, happy and fearless. Of course, people look to money as their God. Money can fix all of my problems. I can buy the best doctors. I can protect myself from things. I can take care of my children. Money solves everything. And people are constantly given over to the temptation to make money a God. What about family? Many people run the risk of turning their family into their functional God. Some parents' happiness is entirely bound up to their children being successful in life. All of us have heard about actress Lori Loughlin, who's been in the news for the last year. Remember her from Full House. The reason she's in the news is not because of the relaunch of Full House. The reason she's been in the news is because her husband and her are being indicted in the college admissions scandal, and allegedly they had paid some $500,000 to bribe USC to allow both of their daughters to be accepted there. What on earth would cause an otherwise attractive, well-known, successful, well-off woman like Lori Laughlin to do something so unethical unless the significance of her life is somehow tethered to seeing her children go to the right schools, get the right education, make something out of their lives. Of course, it could be people. During the New Testament times, they had a thing called Caesar worship. Caesar was looked to as a God and the people would go and they would worship Caesar. Of course, we don't worship Caesar anymore, but we're kidding ourselves if we don't think we have celebrity worship. Or people's entire lives are finding meaning and joy and delight out of following their favorite celebrities and trying to emulate them and dress like them. And we memorize all their songs and all of their lines in their movies and whatever they do, we want to do. And their views on politics become our views on politics. These people are like semi-divine demigods in our culture today. For some people, their functional God is approval or acceptance from others. Every decision you've ever made in your life is a decision aimed at earning somebody's approval. Maybe it was your father. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it's your spouse. It's about being validated in their eyes. And when we raise the approval of others to that level, guess what? You are setting yourself up for a great and tragic fall. You hear about the consequences of this in this lyric from Christian rapper Lecrae. He says, if you live for their approval, you will die from their rejection. He's speaking about raising this to an idolatrous level. Because the moment that person that you've been working your whole life to get approval from removes it, it's like your life has lost all meaning. You will die from their rejection. It could be a relationship. It could be a great political or social cause. It could be recreation or leisure or travel. It could be pleasure. It could be food or drink or gambling or drugs or sex or fitness or beauty or brains or ministry or technology and on and on the list goes. There are so many idols in our culture. But here's the really, really scary thing about idolatry. Maybe you noticed this from the list I just rattled off. It's not only bad things that we can be tempted to worship and turn into false gods. In fact, most of the things I just read on that list are good things that people turn into God things. And that's the problem. I'll quote Tim Keller one more time because he's so helpful here. And I quote, we think of idols, he says, as bad things, but that is almost never the case. Why? He says, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially, he says, the very best things in life. End quote. More often than not, idolatry happens when we take, like I said, a good thing in our life, your career, your family, and we elevate it to the level of a God thing. So church, we have become more sophisticated in the 21st century. We're not so obvious. We don't have our little household gods that we bow down to anymore. But make no mistake about it, idolatry is a great issue we struggle with. How would somebody discover the idols of their heart? Let me talk to the note takers again. I've got five things for you. Five questions you can jot down in helping us to discover our idols. I shared these when we were teaching on the Ten Commandments. Question number one Who or what do you love most? Question two In whom or what do you trust? Question number three, who or what do you live for? Or the inverse of that, question number four, who or what can you not live without? And finally, question five, where do you invest your time, talent, and treasure most? If you want a homework assignment this week, which nobody in the world ever wants, um, but if you would humor your pastor, get alone with those five questions and just sit and just ponder, and just think, and just be really, really honest before the Lord about how you answer those questions. Because if you can get to the answer to those questions, you can identify the thing that you are really worshiping with your life. And it's important that we get to the bottom of this because as I'm trying to say this morning, idolatry is a big Deal. Why? Well, because God says so, but we won't stop there. That never works with our own children. So I'd be naive to think that's going to work with God's kids either. So let me give you four reasons why idolatry is lame this morning. Four reasons idolatry is lame. Number one, which is pretty obvious, idolatry foolishly exchanges the true God for false gods. Foolishly exchanges the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for false gods. Romans 1, and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So idolatry commits a great and foolish exchange. You can have the real God. And you say, no, I'm going to exchange that for a false God, a fake God. Number two, Why is idolatry lame? Because idolatry is built on lies. Romans 1.25 It says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry is built on a lie. The idols of this world come to your heart and they whisper a bunch of seductive lies like this. An idol comes to you and says to you, Hey, Hey, I will satisfy you. You know that gnawing sense of dissatisfaction in your life? I'm what you're looking for. If you get me, you will be satisfied. That's a lie. Idols come to us. They say to us, Hey, if you have me, your life will be filled with purpose. Give you that purpose that you've always searched for. Idols come to us. If you have me, you will be protected. You will be safe. You will be secure. You will be in control. It's another lie. Idols come to us. They lie to us and they say, if you have me, your life will be worth living. If you don't have me, your life will not. Idolatry is lame because idols or idolatry is built on lies. Number three, Idolatry is lame because idols cannot help you. We just have to get this into our hearts and heads. Idols cannot help you. They're inanimate objects. They're inanimate objects more often than not. Like, how did it not occur to anyone in Exodus 32 that a few hours before they're worshiping this golden calf, it was nothing more than their jewelry? Like, like, how did they all miss out on that? Like, we were just wearing our God on our ears and around our necks. And now we're bowing down and worshiping it. You know, the Hebrew pro- prophets are later going to start making a mockery out of this very idea. Here's Jeremiah's take at it. This is Jeremiah 10.5. He says, <clears throat> their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Like just stuck there, right? Scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak, he says. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. He's like, how ridiculous is this? You have to take your idol and carry it because he doesn't have legs or can't walk himself and then it just stays there. It can't walk. It can't move. It has to be carried and put into place. He says, do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. He's like, hey, your idol is like not real. Can't do anything for you. Or consider Isaiah in Isaiah 44. This is a great passage. You should totally read it sometime. Isaiah says, look, there's this carpenter, and the carpenter goes out into the forest. And it sounds like I'm setting up a joke, but I'm not. Well, I kind of am, because the Hebrew prophets are joking about this. But Isaiah says, there's this carpenter, he goes into the forest, and he sees a tree. So he takes his axe, and he fells the tree. And he looks at the wood laying on the ground, and he says to himself, what should I do with the wood? He goes, okay, I've got a great idea. I'm hungry. With half of it, I'm going to chop it up into firewood. And he does, and he builds himself a campfire, and he cooks lunch on it. Then he goes, wow, well, I've still got another half of wood. What should I do with that? The light bulb comes on. He goes, I've got a great idea. I can use that wood to make a God that I can worship and that can deliver me. And so he does. He gets out his tools and he fashions this into a wooden God. And then he sets it up. And he literally, this is Isaiah chapter 44, verse 17. He prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. He's talking to a tree, people. Like, that's how ridiculous this is. And that's Isaiah's point. Like, you, you just cut that down in the woods and you turned it into your own God and now you're asking that piece of wood to deliver you? Isaiah's like, your God can't save you. Your God is lame. Your God is nothing. Your God has no power. Of course, there's the great story in Genesis 31 where Laban is chasing down his son-in-law. You thought your family had problems? He's chasing down his son-in-law, Jacob, because Jacob and Rachel are going back to Jacob's homeland, and Laban's like, uh, my, my gods are gone. My household gods are gone. And so he's searching around frantically. He didn't know Rachel, his daughter, had stolen his dad's gods. But he's frantically and anxiously searching for his household gods. And I'm wondering this morning, because it's such a humorous picture, is there anyone in this church who has enough issues going on in your life to worry about that you don't want to also have to worry about keeping track of your God? Like, is there anyone else in this church this morning who would say, yeah, you know what? I'm actually interested in worshiping a God, not that I have to keep track of, but a God who keeps track of me. Is there anyone in this church this morning who's more interested in having a God who can't get stolen or dinged or needs to be upgraded because your neighbor got a later model than your God? The only way we can make that happen is by turning away from lesser gods and worshiping the one true God. Idols cannot help you. Fourth and finally, idolatry is lame because it's the root of all other sin. Romans 1.24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why did God do this? Why are they given over to impurity? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying all of this other sin that I'm describing in Romans 1 is the result of a more foundational sin called idolatry. In other words, idolatry is the problem beneath all of your sinful problems. In fact, this is the title of my sermon this morning. Your problems got problems. Because we're looking at a lot of different sins that are jacking up our family, that are messing up your professional life, that are putting strain on your relationships with other people in the church. And we're looking at all this sin. We're saying, I got to fix that stuff. And yes, you do. But the cure is by getting underneath all that and addressing the idolatry in your heart. What's interesting about the Ten Commandments is that you can't really break one and two, or I'm sorry, let me say it differently. You can't really break the other commandments until you break commandment one and two. What do I mean? Well, no one steals something unless they first made stuff too important. No one commits adultery unless sex or conquest or re- revenge or some other lesser thing is seated on the throne of their hearts. as long as the Lord is your God, as long as He has your love and trust and obedience, we don't go breaking the other commandments. I want you to see in our text that Israel proves the point here. For them, their idolatry led to all sorts of other sins in their lives. Verse 6 says this, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up. To play. And what does that mean? They rose up to play. Sounds innocent enough, like rose up to play duck, duck, goose, or tag, or something? No, it's a euphemism for something else. 1 Corinthians helps us to know. Here's 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 8. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now he's going to tell us what that means. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So for Israel, idolatry, the root sin, led to drunkenness and an orgy, sexual sin. Also the sin of idolatry led Aaron to lie to his brother Moses. Look at verse 21. So Moses comes down the mountain. He goes to the man he left in charge. Verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 24, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Like the lamest excuse in the history of the world. Moses comes to his brother, the high priest of Israel, and he says to him, what did these people do to you? Did they put a gun to your head? What did they do to you that you would commit such a great sin? And I love Aaron's response. He says, I don't know the people made me do it. I blacked out. I just threw everything in the fire and out came the gold calf. And Moses is just angry. He's furious, we read in the text. So notice there that idolatry, yes, it led to drunkenness and sexual sin. For Aaron, it led him to lie to his brother. Idolatry is leading to all of these other sins. Let's recap at this point. Everyone is a worshiper. Idolatry is worship gone wrong. So be careful because anything can become an idol and idols are lame. Okay, lastly, let's discuss this. If everything I said is true up to this point, we probably want a little help with our idols. How do we defeat our idols? How do we overcome idolatry in our life? Well, let's look at what Moses did when he came down the mountain. These points will come very quickly. Number one, Moses identified the idol. He called it what it was, that it was sin. Again, in verse 21, what did this people do to you, Aaron, that you have brought such a great sin upon them it begins with identifying and calling your idol what it is this isn't just a guilty pleasure in my life this isn't just something this is if you have an idol you have to call it what it is that it's actually sinful before god and therefore needs to be repented of or turned away from so many people myself included at times live in denial about the idols of their lives You talk to a drunk or somebody who's addicted to drugs. They say, I'm not addicted. I could stop this at any point I want to. Or you talk to somebody about something that you see, a friend in your life, and you see this thing is controlling them. This thing is dominating. This is causing them to actually make decisions in their lives that are like going against God's word and you try to point it out to them and they go, no, 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 this this isn't an idol. Don't judge me, bro. It's not like that. It begins by identifying the idol. Number two... Moses removes the idol. I love what one commentator said. He said, idols can't be managed. They must be destroyed. Look at verse 20. Here's how Moses destroys the idol. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water. And he said, you guys want something to drink? Here's something to drink. And he made the people of Israel drink it. Moses takes their idol says, oh, this is your God, really? Okay, stick it in the fire. He grinds it down to powder, mixes it in their water and gives them something bitter to sober them up with. He destroys the idol and some idols must be destroyed. If you have a drug addiction, that's not something you manage. Well, I'm just going like, to go to like half usage on this thing, man. I'm going to cut back a little bit. If you have a drug addiction, you have to destroy that idol. If you have a gambling addiction, you don't, well, I'm just gonna gamble half the time, half my money now, destroy it. Now, obviously this works really good for some idols and not so good for other idols, right? If you've made career your idol, it's not gonna work out too well for you to leave church today and go, boom, I've got it. My idol is my job. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm never going back to work again. Boom, destroyed my idol. That's not going to work very long. So what do we do with idols that cannot be destroyed? Idols that are good things that we've made into God things? Well, the answer is that we redeem them by putting them back into their proper place. And here's how. Look what Moses does. Third, he replaces the idol. Moses turns their worship back to God. Remember, we are worshipers. It wouldn't have worked for Moses just to say, stop it. Just stop it. Don't ever be an idolater again. Just stop it. Okay, we're good. Let's move on. So what does Moses do? He says, I have to turn their attention back to the Lord. The only way to deliver them from idolatry was to refocus their worship on the Lord. It was worship that got them into this mess. And it was going to be worship that would get them out of it. The Israelites had to choose who they would worship. Moses in verse 26 He says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Whether your idol needs to be removed or redeemed, the solution is the same. Family, listen. Direct your worship back to the Lord, turn your attention on Him, and watch as our idols begin to lose their power. Listen to the words of the familiar hymn Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. See this? The attention is on Christ. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Worship got us into this mess. Worship will get us out of it. One last key, and it's the most important key of all. Family, we have to get this into our heads. Idolatry, like all sin, is not something that is inconsequential. Idolatry, like all other sin, actually brings God's wrath upon people. So it's not good enough for us just this morning, on August 4th, to say, okay, I'm done, I'm never going to do this again. And even if that were good enough, nobody's going to do that perfectly for the rest of their life anyway. All of us have been idolaters at some point in our life, And that means that all of us are sitting under God's wrath unless we, like the Israelites, have a mediator. In verse 10, God was ready to destroy the entire nation for their sin. Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, God says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God was ready to judge them because of their idolatry. But guess what? There was one person in Israel who didn't give in to this sin and who could mediate for them, and it was Moses. And he mediates, and God relents. Taylor read this in our Scripture reading, Psalm 106.23. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Church, all of us need a mediator if we hope to escape the judgment of God that our idolatry deserves. And God has provided one for us, just like Moses was there for Israel. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Moses steps in says, God, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't judge these people. And God relents. And He doesn't destroy the entire nation. But guess what? This is so important. It doesn't mean that God ignored their sin. Their sins still needed to be dealt with. We won't read the verses, but in 27 and 28, we see that those who persisted in the sin, those who were not willing to come back to the Lord, were actually killed. Those who did turn away from their sin and come back to Yahweh were spared but they needed atonement, meaning they needed their sin dealt with. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes back before the Lord and he wants to make atonement and he offers his life for theirs and God in verse 32. Here's Moses say, please blot me out of your book if you won't forgive their sins. That's a very noble thing. Moses is like, my life for theirs. And guess what God says to him in verse 33? But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, you can't save them from their sins. Nothing you can do. And the reason church is so simple, because Moses himself was infected with the same disease we all have. It's called Sin. And Moses was just as sinful as every other Israelite. He had no right to offer his life in exchange for the sins of God's people. And so, yes, it's true. We need a, mo- a mediator like Moses. But church, this morning, let us allow our ending note of this sermon to be that you and I need a mediator who's greater than Moses. And praise be to God that in His Son, Jesus Christ, we have exactly that. That in Christ, we have the only one who is qualified to deliver us from our sins because Jesus, the Christ, is the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when God looked at you and God looked at me and he said, I am burning hot in my wrath against these people, Jesus, his son, was able to say to the Father, how about my life instead of theirs? And the father we read was pleased to crush him. That God looked at you through the corridors of time and he heard Jesus' offer and he said, okay. And he laid on Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago all of our sin. So that by turning away from all of our idols and embracing Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we could for once and all be forgiven and be reconciled to our Father in heaven. That's the gospel. That is the good news. And that's what we are orienting our hearts and our lives around every single day as children of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the great love that you have for us. We see it demonstrated in the book of Exodus toward your people, The Hebrew people who you had called to be your own and you had promised your faithful love toward. Although they were sinful time and time again, you constantly made provisions to deal with their sin. Of course, at that point, it was temporary provisions through the sacrifices of animals. But all of that was always pointing forward to the ultimate and eternal provision that you had ordained before the foundation of the earth. That you would send your one and only Son, who was spotless, who was sinless, to atone for all of our sin. And Jesus, we praise you this morning in this church. We worship you this morning. We once again say that we are going to choose to be on your side this morning. We are choosing to turn away from our lesser gods, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would empower us to do exactly that. That we would once again have our lives oriented by this great gospel news that all of our sin is dealt with in Christ. And because of Jesus, we can fully and finally and forever be the children of God. Lord, I pray for any who have joined us in our church this morning who have never made that decision. They've never looked at the sin in their lives. All of the different idols that They're choosing to treasure and love and obey, and they've never looked at that and said, it's just not worth it. I want God. I want to know the living God. Lord, I pray for any who have never made that decision. Perhaps this morning, by your spirit, they are saying, that's what I want out of my life. I want to choose Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to make that decision in their heart, even now as we're praying. And to begin from this day forward to put Christ first. So Lord, as we now sing a song of praise to you, we pray that all of our hearts and minds would be flooded with gratitude over the goodness of our God. And that we would be empowered by your spirit to have a desire to destroy every idol in our lives. To redeem whatever idols need to be redeemed for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.